0: we are so thankful for this time together. We're so thankful for your goodness. So thankful that you have made us your children. So thankful, Lord, for this, for this place. We're so thankful, Lord, for your word. And, and now, Lord, as, as we sit and, and we submit ourselves to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us and, and speak to us and, and form us we we, uh, Lord, we give this time to you, and 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 we pray, uh, Lord, that your will would be done, that our eyes would be lifted to see you, and, and that we would be filled with uh, with a wonder and an awe of who you are. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, come among us today in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, if you have spent uh, any time around me and heard me talk you'll know that one of my areas of, of passion and real interest is these, uh, these moments in history when God's Spirit has, has moved and, and been poured out on His people and has resulted in, in many, many people coming to know Jesus, coming to salvation. We call these periods, as we talked about last week, revivals. Uh, I, I love I love studying about these reading about these Acts two which we looked at last week is kind of the prototypical revival everything that happens afterwards uh, in in church history is kind of a reenactment of what happens in, in Acts two this outpouring of the Spirit that leads to thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus uh, when I was when I was first starting to get into the history of revivals, one of one of the moments that especially caught my attention that I dug into was the Welsh Revival, of the early 20th century. So in the in the region of Wales, in the in the British Isles. Uh, so, so the Welsh Revival, early 20th century, started with just a small group of teens and young adults, uh, especially led by a young pastor named Evan Roberts. And they just they were praying. They were just just desperately praying for God's presence, and for, for, for awakening, and it happened. The Holy Spirit came on them, and revival spread across the land. Within one year, 100,000 Welsh were brought to saving faith in Jesus. One year, 100,000, and it started with just a handful of, of young people praying for this. The societal change that took place in in Wales was incredible. You had taverns that closed up because nobody wanted to hang out there anymore. You had soccer games that were being postponed because nobody cared about soccer anymore. You had uh, courthouses that were closed. Police, you had nothing to do. My favorite little anecdote is that the horses in the coal mines in Wales stopped responding to their owners because their language and behavior was so cleaned up and so dramatically different. And I know some of you are thinking, man, this sounds terrible. No crime, no drama, no sports. What would you watch on TV? That's like all of Netflix right there. But people didn't have have the desire for superficial entertainment. All they wanted was supernatural presence. They just... They just wanted to worship together. Now what's equally as fascinating, and I think equally as interesting, is understanding why revivals die. Why they they peter out, why they go off the rails, why they end up in strange excesses. Because that's what happened with the Welsh Revival. I mean, it, it spread across the world. You could, track, you could track a lot of what happens in the early 20th century originating with the Welsh uh, revival in terms of Christian history, but, but in Wales itself, the results were somewhat short-lived. Uh, Evan Roberts himself went into seclusion and indulged in all kinds of debatable theological obsessions. Uh, and, and it kind of it, it petered out and, and Christian historians look back and say that one of the main reasons that happened was because there really wasn't very much preaching in the Welsh revival and me of course I go yeah amen <laughs> there was there wasn't not that there wasn't I'm not happy that there wasn't a lot of preaching just the importance of preaching you get what I'm saying uh, it just wasn't grounded. In Scripture, it was uh, it was all emotion, all experience. And when the emotions faded, so did the commitment, so did the consecration. We talked this about this last week. We said that the point is not the power, and the point is also not the experience. The point is who the power and who the experience points to. The point of the Holy Spirit's moving in such a dramatic way is to create an opening. For Jesus to be made known. And and the scriptures are the authoritative revelation about who Jesus is. The point is to create a a thirst for Jesus. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. This dramatic outpouring of the spirit that results in a whole bunch of blue-collar Galilean Hillbillies essentially becoming PhD multilinguists in a moment, speaking in all of these dialects and languages around the Mediterranean world. It creates this this opening and and some people in the crowd go, Well, you're just drunk, you know, you're booze hounds, that's you're you're just slurred, that's all you're that's all that I'm hearing. Others go, No, there's there's something happening here. And we, we wanna know we wanna know what it is. What what's 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 going on. Uh, Let's look at what Peter does from that, because what he's going to do is ground the whole thing in the Scriptures. He's going to say, look, all of that that you're seeing, all that you're experiencing, has all actually been promised from ages past. Let's look at how this plays out. Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem... Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the first thing Peter does is he... Uh, He addresses the the whole alcohol accusation. He goes, we haven't had enough time to be intoxicated. It's only nine in the morning. Truth bomb. Boom. Move on. And where he goes next, again, is to say that that what you're seeing is actually the fulfillment of the promises of scriptures, including in in the prophet Joel. This is nothing new. See, we need, to, we need to say right from the start that the Holy Spirit doesn't just kind of pop onto the scene in the book of Acts, or even in the Gospels. It's not like, hey, we're introducing a new person of the Trinity here. Instead, the Holy Spirit, uh, the ancient Christian confession is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three and yet one, from eternity past to eternity future. The Holy Spirit has always been God. The Holy Spirit's always been at work. And we see that in the Old Testament. It's just that oftentimes it's a, it's a kind of a temporary endowment of power for a particular task in the Old Testament. So this happened a lot, for example, to Samson. You know, the mighty, the mighty macho man, Samson. One day he's walking along the road and this lion comes charging at him. Straight up lion. I was at the, we were at the Greater Vancouver Zoo last week, and uh, we were at the cheetah cage, and for some reason, I guess to entertain my kids, I thought I would taunt the cheetah a little bit, and uh, you know, and the cheetah didn't like that very much, and it started snarling at me, and getting ready to pounce, and like, I know there's a fence there, but I don't know, can cheetahs jump 20 feet? I really don't know, and so I started, I was, you know, my heart was beating a little bit, and I'm never allowed back at the zoo again. They banned me for life. That was, I'm just kidding, they didn't do that but I was terrified. Here's a lion charging right at Samson. The Holy Spirit comes on him and he tears the lion apart with his bare hands. Like crazy stuff. So that's the kind of thing that happens, but it's not this, it's not this baptism. It's not this indwelling. It's not this kind of permanent like Holy Spirit within us kind of thing. And, and that's what That's what the prophet Joel looks forward to. He says the the days are coming when when the Spirit is going to be upon the Lord's people and and within the Lord's people. And and, and Joel says that that's going to happen in the last days. And, And Peter now seems to believe that this is being fulfilled right here and now, which means that according to Peter, we are in the last days. Did you know that? We are in the last days. I've calculated it. Uh, next Friday, 2 p.m., that's the end. So uh, you can sell all your possessions, and we're going to go wait on top of Mount Seymour together. It's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> no, we've been in the last days since since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That, that, that's the marker. This is the last stage of history, and the giving of the Holy Spirit is, just, is, is one marker of these last days. So in these last days, the Holy Spirit's going to come and there's going to be signs and wonders. Think about the sun turning to darkness at the death of Jesus. Think about the, the Holy Spirit coming like tongues of fire on the disciples. So there's going to be these signs and wonders and there's going to be prophecy and visions and dreams. I've got to say, we, we experience this to this day. I, I, res, I experienced it last week through a couple of different people. Right after the Sunday morning service, a woman came up to me, and uh, and said to me that she had received a couple of images, visions, uh, during during worship, and they were immensely encouraging and and totally connected to and related with what we had talked about that morning. And then in the evening, uh, in the evening service, uh, after the sermon, during the final song, a, a different woman came up to me and said, "I heard something from the Lord just now," and and she told me what it what it was. and and by the way, that's that's what's meant by prophecy. Prophecy isn't just telling the future. Sometimes it can involve that, and actually, with this woman who, who spoke to me, it did involve a piece of that. But but fundamentally it's it's delivering a message from the Lord into a particular situation and time. And and this message, this this word she received from the Lord, so encouraging. Uh, which is was what prophecy often does. It's, it's supposed to build up, according to Paul, so encouraging, and uh, it doesn't always build up. Sometimes it can convict, but, but even then it's building up. So it, it built up, and it, was, and it was so relevant, again, to what I talked about. So the Holy Spirit poured out, communicating God's messages, His will, to the people. And, and this doesn't just happen for a few elite leaders, or even like the men, or just the pastor, or whatever. There's this great story in, uh, in Numbers, chapter 11. God, uh, God's people, the Israelites, they've been wandering through the wilderness for, for a while, and things aren't going well. It usually wasn't in the wilderness, and the people are complaining. And so God's response is to send his spirit on these 70 elders of the Israelites, and they begin prophesying. And, and then there are these two guys who aren't elders, uh, Me, Dad, and Eldad, which is Spanish for the Father. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. That wasn't funny at all. So, Me, Dad, and Eldad, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin prophesying as well. And Joshua, who is Moses' uh, aide and, and the future leader of the Israelites, he runs to Moses and he goes, You've got to shut this down. This isn't good. They're, they're, not, they're, you know, they're not licensed, they're not registered to do this, essentially. And Moses' response is to say to, to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, this, this is the desire of Moses, that all the Lord's people would hear from the Lord, would be able to prophesy, would be able to communicate God's message. That's Moses' desire. And it speaks to a desire in the human heart, doesn't it? to hear from God, to have him speak to us and through us, for him to make his presence known to us. This this is a desire. It's not just that the Holy Spirit fulfills the promises of the scriptures, but that the outpouring of the Spirit fulfills the desires of the human heart for intimacy with the the one, with, with God, who created all things. See, there's this, this radical inclusivity in the, in the outpouring of the Spirit. And as soon as I say that word, I need, I need to clarify. Because when people today hear inclusivity, they, they think often that it means an inclusivity regardless of belief, regardless of, of decisions, of, of morality, and, and, and even if those things are completely contrary to God's will. And that's not the kind of inclusivity I'm talking about. Actually, in the Bible, uh, willfully living in wrong ways and persisting in wrong belief, that's exactly what quenches the Holy Spirit. That, that's called walking by the flesh instead of by the Spirit. It's an inclusivity that's, that's regardless of age and sex and ethnic background and language, which also speaks to a desire in the human heart, doesn't it? For, for our, our status, our worldly status to not matter when it comes to, to God's presence in our lives. That whether you're at the top rung of the social ladder or the bottom rung, it's irrelevant. It has zero relationship to your ability to receive the Spirit. In fact, actually, in some ways, being on the top rung puts you at a disadvantage because you're more likely to rely on your own power than you are to make space for, for the Lord's power. But this, this is for anyone. This is for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Joel says, and, and Peter quotes him. This is for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And who is the Lord? Who do you have to know to get in on this? Well, let's keep going. Cliffhanger. You have no idea who I'm talking about. Verse 22. Peter keeps on going. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of... Na- he spoiled it. There it is right there. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So, the first few verses here... Uh, Peter kind of does a review with the crowd. They already know this stuff. They, they know that stories of miracles followed Jesus wherever he went. Some of them might have even been a witness to some of these miracles. So they know that, and they know that Jesus had been crucified. I mean, it happened just under two months before this. So they, they, know, they know all of this. Peter's just reviewing it for them and kind of saying, hey, you participated in this, by the way. And then... Peter breaks some new ground. He says not only was Jesus crucified, but he was risen from the dead. And to get at this, Peter goes to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16, which uh, Brent read for us a little bit earlier in the service. Psalm 16 is written by King David. And, uh, and David says in this psalm that God will not allow him to see decay, that he will not allow, uh, abandon him to the realm of the dead. And naturally, most people would have assumed that this psalm was about David, that maybe David was going through some life-threatening situation, which if you read the story of David, that's like every second day for him. Uh, He was going through something, almost died, and yet God delivered him, rescued him from that, didn't allow him to go down to the grave. And some of you can relate to that. You've been in a situation where, where death felt like it was right around the corner, where you felt like you were maybe ready to say sayonara to life in this world, and yet God, perhaps miraculously, delivered you from that, did not allow you to go down to the grave. But Peter's point is that while this psalm might have been about David in some sense, that it makes, that it makes some connection with David, that it can't be fulfilled by David. Psalm 16 can't be fulfilled by David because David did die. Eventually, he did go down to the grave. And Peter says, guys, you know this. We, we could go look at, at David's grave right now. Graveyard field trip. Let's go. We can check it out. He's here. His grave is here. See, this is what happens whenever we try to find fulfillment in anything created. There's always there's, there's, there's a sense where there is a partial fulfillment I mean, think about marriage. Marriage, when it's healthy, when it's good, really does provide a sense of love and stability. Spending time in creation really can cultivate a sense of peace. Money can actually uh, create experiences or can pay for experiences that that give us joy. There is a partial fulfillment, but if you stop there, you are settling for second best. You are settling for something less than the full deal. So Peter says, look, David is not the fulfillment of this passage. That can't be found in him. He did die, but let me tell you about somebody who was raised from the dead. Somebody who did not see decay. Somebody who was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. Peter says, look, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of it. And just quickly... This is one of, I think, the strongest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. That the disciples proclaim the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. Where they could have gone on a graveyard field trip. They could have gone. There's the tomb of Jesus. What are you talking about? The early church explodes because of the testimony of the resurrection in Jerusalem. Where it would have been easy to, to, you know, to provide a rebuttal. Look, there's the grave. I, I mean, the disciples proclaimed the resurrection in a city where Jesus had just been killed and they were next on the hit list. And actually, a lot of them did die for their testimony about the resurrection and yet none of them recanted because they really believed truly believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They saw it. They they were convinced that Jesus had beaten death. And Peter uses even more vivid imagery. He says not only did Jesus beat death, but but God freed him from the agony of death and death could not hold him. See, death gets everyone in the end, right? I mean, uh, what's his name? Bezos, and, and Peter Thiel and the guys from Google and all kinds of filthy rich guys, they're all investing billions of dollars trying to figure out how they can beat death. You know this? They're investing billions of dollars in company that, the companies that are trying to achieve eternal life, essentially. And, and so far, it's not working out real great. It's not looking good for them. They, they will probably die despite all their money, despite the way that they can exert their influence and power in so many ways. This is one thing they can't escape. And, and it speaks to, again, a human desire at a more basic level. They just have the money to mount a defense, but, but almost everybody f- has a fear of, of death. They don't want to die. They, 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 they want to they do what they can to live. In a lot of ways, that's what's been going on the last two years in response to this pandemic is a very understandable human fear of, of death and a desire for, for life right? That, that's, that's what we want. And so in this way, again, Jesus not only fulfills the promises of the scriptures, but he fulfills this longing in the human heart for freedom from the chains of death. Death could not hold him. I just, I just love that language so much. It's like, it's like imagine putting on like a child small-sized t-shirt on Bruce Banner just before he turns into the Hulk. How's that going to go? It's gonna burst through it that that t-shirt doesn't stand a chance you know it's being ripped apart at the seams that's jesus with death death is like the child-sized t-shirt jesus is the hulk doesn't stand a chance you know it's torn apart here's jesus bursting through the seams of death to the other side victorious in a resurrected body that will never decay and here's the good news That Jesus not only fulfills the scriptures and he not only fulfills the desires of humanity generally for life, abundant life, but he fulfills it in us. And here's what I mean by that. And some of you have heard me talk about this often, so I apologize. but, But the resurrection of Jesus, according to the Bible, is not just an isolated event that happens and it's like good for him. The resurrection of Jesus is a promise. It's a deposit. It's a guarantee. It's the first fruits, is how Peter is how Paul puts it in First Corinthians. It's the first fruits. It means that for all who trust in Jesus, you will share in his resurrection. Your your victory or his victory over death will be your victory. Uh, that that Jesus was resurrected in the middle of history, and at the end of history, all who trust in him will be resurrected in the same way, which means that death, while it will come to us, and as followers of Jesus, for those of us who are, it, it, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer loss, that we won't be rejected, that we won't hit the lows, and again, that we won't face physical death, but that ultimately, death will not be able to hold you because it couldn't hold him. Death will not be able to hold you because it, because it couldn't hold the one whose Holy Spirit now dwells in you. You would be obliterated in life. You would be crushed by death on your own. But it's not about you or your strength. It's about him. It's about his power. And so death will not be able to hold you. Don't, don't look so comatose about this. This is good news. Come on. Amen? Amen? Death will not be able to hold you because it could not hold him. And so Jesus fulfills the scriptures. He fulfills the longing of humanity and he fulfills it in us by his power. And that's not all that he fulfills. Let's keep going. Verses 33 to 35. Exalted. To the right hand of God, Peter says, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the uh, this is what we talked about a couple or a few weeks ago the first week in this in this sermon series. So if you're on live stream, so glad to have you with us. Here's the advantage. You can pause right now, go back to Acts 1 and just watch that whole sermon and then resume with us here in a little bit. All of you in person, sorry you can't do that. So we talked about the ascension of Jesus. And and you remember what the ascension was about if you were here, I hope. The ascension is about Jesus taking up his rule and his reign as Lord over heaven and earth. He is ascended to heaven at the right hand of God, the control room of the universe. He's calling the shots. He's got, he's got this authority. And, and to get at this, Peter says, look, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures here too. He goes to Psalm 110, which is, fun fact, little trivia for you, the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Bust that out at a cocktail party sometime, it'll go over great. So, so Psalm 110 David has an interesting choice of words here. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty, said to my Lord. And the question is, who's David talking about? Who's his Lord? Because he's the king, right? He's the anointed one. Ain't nobody higher than the king. So who's David talking about? And because of that, a lot of Jewish people believe that this was a messianic psalm. This was a psalm pointing to this, this future king, this anointed one who would restore Israel. But I don't think that's shooting high enough, and neither did Peter. Because this passage can't just be about another king. David calls him, my lord, and this king, this anointed one, ascends to God's right hand. Peter goes, David didn't do that. No human king could, but Jesus. Jesus did. In his resurrected glory, he ascended to the Father and has assumed this, this kingship. So Jesus fulfills the scriptures. And guess what? He fulfills the desires of the human heart here as well. Because, because us humans, we humans, we, we long for, for, for the kingdom. We long for righteous government, don't we? Every democratic election is an expression of this desire to install a wise and righteous leader. Every movement, every, every protest from Black Lives Matter to anti-vaccine passports across the board, you might totally disagree with one or the other or both, but they are springing from a desire for a better world, for, for, the, for the world to be governed by better principles according to whoever's doing it. But there's this desire for the kingdom. Countless tales and heroic epics speak to that same desire in the human heart. And the problem is that every human king, every, have you noticed that every government fails to deliver on its promises? I don't know if you've noticed that. I'm picking up on that a little bit. Every human government fails. Every movement, every protest, every revolution fails. But Jesus, Jesus has this authority, and he offers it freely. You can choose to reject his authority and live on your own, but if you choose to come under his rule and his reign as Lord, then then you experience the fulfillment of this desire in the heart for righteousness governance. And not only that, but Jesus fulfills it in us. Because the Bible says that for all who trust in Jesus, you will be resurrected. And not only that, but you will reign with him. That's the promise in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. We read that God's servants will see him face to face and that we will reign with him forever. We will participate in that reign. So to sum up, the Holy Spirit poured out on the early church in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Incredible signs and wonders. People are are curious what is going on here. Peter stands up, shows them how everything is a fulfillment of the the Scriptures and a fulfillment of their own long-held desires and expectations. But Peter's got one more thing to say. It says, drop the mic moment, the seal the deal moment. It's like uh, the sports announcer Kevin Harlan Asked a moment before Kawhi Leonard hit the greatest shot in NBA history. I might be a little bit biased. Could this be the dagger? This is the dagger right here. (laughs) I've watched that clip like a hundred times. I've been trying to perfect my Kevin Harlan interpretation anyways. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is what it boils down to this, this is the question this is the decision and, and this is the decision that will determine the orientation of your entire life and I know that sounds crazy to say because you 're never going to hear about this question or this issue uh, in, in, in our in our news media, you know in our frantic, frenzied anxious world you 're never going to hear this, but i 'm telling you this is the question the issue that everyone needs to answer and will determine everything else are you ready for it the question is who do you stand with in relation to jesus because according to peter there are basically two sides there's humanity who crucified jesus they did not believe that he that he was who he said he was they believed that he was a fraud they believed he was a threat and so they were determined to get rid of him, to do away with him. And you might go, well, okay, but most humans wouldn't do that. They wouldn't crucify Jesus. He was a good guy after all. But by saying he's just a good guy, you are saying, no, he was not who he said he was. He, he was a liar. He was a fraud. It's just a nicer way of, of sweeping him under the carpet. That's, that's what humanity does with Jesus. The other side, to put it bluntly, according to Peter, is God's side doesn't really pull any punches here. And he says that God vindicated Jesus. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. God said, no, I don't think so. Raised him from the dead in resurrection and through the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God has made it very clear that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-hoped-for Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, God has exalted him. So you can side with humans. You say Jesus is just another good guy and I can go about life however I want. Or you can go with God and say Jesus is Lord, the rightful Lord of my life and I will will follow him. That's the choice. Will you find fulfillment in created things or will you find fulfillment in the one who created all things? Will you bow the knee? to Jesus as Lord and agree with God's assessment of who he is. I want to I share with you a testimony of someone in our church who had to address and, and wrestle with that exact question. So, enjoy.
1: When the opportunity came to baptize my son, I, I decided, I felt that I, I should be baptized as well. And at at the time of baptism, I had accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but it was more of a struggle to to uh, invite Jesus into my life as Lord. It's the thought of giving up control of my life. Yeah, I mean, I can accept Jesus as my Savior, but to to give up my life to someone. Uh, to someone else, or to have to give control of my life to someone else, was uh, a bit, a bit daunting. Things definitely got better and better. You know, my my, my dental practice got better. Uh, I was I was becoming more debt free. I was actually at the point in my practice was becoming very successful and it was thriving and, uh, uh, and I, it was at a point where I was I, I could see myself making a million dollars in a very short period of time <laughs> even though I didn't uh, accept God as my Lord he was actually working in my heart and softening my heart uh, very gently uh, he led me to short-term dental missions to the Philippines, to Uganda, and to other countries that that, I, I, that my faith grew in Christ. But still, I did not allow him to be my Lord. No, he was still my, my Savior. But things changed quite quickly when I went on a dental mission to Nepal. remember that I was doing a Bible study in at sitting on this uh, porch of the guest house of the mission hospital guest house overlooking this beautiful beautiful valley down below and I could feel this warmth come over me as I was doing this uh, Bible study on the discipleship it was on the how you know it was on the cost of discipleship and I could feel the Holy Spirit and God speaking to me through the uh, through my study Uh, God was asking me was I willing to give up my house with the swimming pool And I said yes was I willing to give up my friends and I said yes was I willing to give up my dental practice my lucrative dental practice and I said yes uh, and then God asked me, "Would you be willing to give up your family?" And I just thought about it and prayed about it, and I said, "No, I'm. I I can't, I can't give up my. I can't give up my family." Two weeks later, Ruth came to me, and she told me that she felt called by God to. To serve in Nepal and I was blown out of my mind because here God was talking to me and and at the same time God was talking to Ruth and God made it possible for me to say yes and didn't think Ruth would say yes because through our time and in, in, during that short-term mission uh, Ruth was sick our children had chicken pox and and that's when I committed my self to, uh, to having God as the Lord of my life. You know, I believe that you cannot be a disciple and not have God as Lord of your life. So that was a start of our journey with God as the Lord of our life and you know there's so many things I could tell you about about that journey but I do have to say that Experiencing God by serving God and by serving people has brought more joy in my life than I could ever ask or imagine. And his plan for my life couldn't have been better than if I had planned out my life for myself. Seeking fulfillment through all the things I had in the past cannot compare to the all-surpassing joy of knowing God and experiencing God as I serve him and as I serve people. Uh, when, we, when we are disciples of God, when we decide to follow God, we also have to accept him as Lord of our life.
0: Robert? He's he's somewhere? Okay. Wherever you are, Robert, thanks so much for sharing. That's the choice. That's the the decision before us, is will Jesus be Lord? Do you agree with God's assessment of him, or do you side with, with humanity? And it's scary. Like Robert said, it's giving up control. It's, it's, it's laying down your vision of how life was supposed to go in trust, that God's vision is going to be better, uh, that God has got something even better in store for you, that there is a deeper fulfillment that comes through him than could ever come in the things of this world. And so I just I want to leave you with that this morning, that decision. And it's a decision that you have to make over and over again, I've often quoted D.L. Moody saying, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. You've got to continue to say to God, you are my Lord, and I surrender again to you. Let's pray, and let's, let's sing. Let's sing into this trust in Jesus as Lord. God, I thank you so much for Peter's sermon that, uh, that morning at Pentecost. I thank you, Jesus, for how you have fulfilled the promises, the ancient promises of old in the scriptures, how you have fulfilled the desires in the human heart, and how you fulfill our own lives, Lord, through faith in you, as we surrender to you, as as we follow you as Lord. I thank you for your goodness and for your greatness in this. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, some of them are wrestling exactly with this question and there are things that they are holding on to. There are ways in which they are seeking fulfillment in created things which might provide a temporary measure of satisfaction but cannot do what only you can do. And I pray today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in them, that you would work in them, And that you would lead them to that place, Lord, of total trust in you. I pray that as a church, that we would continually in every way agree, God, with your assessment of Jesus. That he is Messiah and Lord. And that we would live and worship and serve accordingly. Lord Jesus, we love you and we give our lives to you. Amen.